Hey Siri, what's the temperature going to be today? The high temperature for today will be 21 degrees and the low will be 17. You well enough clothed? High of 17, uh, high of 21, low of 17. Have you ever thought about Siri or Alexa? Siri gives us so much information. Siri holds all the world's knowledge. She determines in the morning what I will wear today, how I'll spend today. It ensures that I will make my meetings and what she does is fact check everything I write. But do you know her? Did you know that her voice was born in 1946? That she was the backing singer to Burt Bacharach and Roy Orbison? That she's an American named Susan Alice Bennett? and that her name, Siri, is the joining of two Norwegian words for beautiful and victory. You see, Siri has so much influence over all of our lives, but nothing about her do we really care about. It's fairly irrelevant to us, because Siri doesn't need to be embodied. Even though Siri can listen to every conversation that I have, it's just the information that she provides is all that I need. And she is just one-dimensional. I ask, she answers, and that's all that I want. And what happens is that actually normalises the way that we relate as well. I don't know Mr or Mrs TripAdvisor, and they certainly don't know me, but they determine where I'll holiday, where I'll stay, and what I do when I'm on holidays. And we follow the lives of people on social media, and sometimes we even interact with them on social media, sometimes because they're someone who knows someone who knows someone that I know. Sometimes we follow people on social media out of curiosity. Sometimes it's because they are the big names that we are keen to somehow pathologically know more about. And what they are, though, are just photos and texts. And that way of relating to people becomes normal, just photo and text, disembodiment. As you relate to people that way, you don't even know the voices of people who you're friends with. You don't get to read their body language. You don't get to hear and share in the belly laughs that they have or to absorb their sobs and to wipe away their tears. That's what relationships are like. But we love them because disembodied relationships are easy. There are fewer complications in my relationship with Siri than the messy relationships that I generally have. And I get from her what I need at no costs. And as normal as this way of relating has become, as we work through our passage this morning, that type of relating as human beings is challenged by the Apostle Paul. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going, we're going to work through verses 12 to 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Why am I picking up this? It's because this is where I'm up to in my multi-year chapel series. So you haven't been at them all, but I have. And so here is uh, some of the propositions that I want us to be thinking about today. We are embodied beings, and that's a blessing. But our bodies have a purpose that is beyond just enjoying our senses, and our bodies are united to Christ, and so glorify Christ with your body. 
So reading these verses. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I won't be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he'll raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Fairly clear, isn't it? Our bodies matter. And how we use them matters. And it matters to us and it matters to God. We are, unlike Siri, embodied beings and that is a blessing and the idea of being embodied is foundational and runs right through these two paragraphs eating of food sexual activity they are acts of embodiment um, our bodies paul goes on to say in the second paragraph are members of christ in fact it's summed up in verse 19 and it's an astounding statement of the importance of our embodiment verse 19 do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you. The thought of disembodiment and that our bodies don't matter is so foreign to the way that the Apostle understands our humanity. And so here's a, here's a thought experiment for you. God, I assume, could have made us merely as intellectual propositions or he could have made us merely just as brains, that is, just as thinking beings, or he could have made us as brains that have feelings. But God, in his ever great kindness, made us as embodied beings, embodied beings with all of our senses and all of our emotions, and they are wonderful things to have, aren't they? The sense of taste, that exquisite mixing of flavours that just makes a zeal sing. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful that God gave us our tongue? In the sense of touch, that special feeling when your parent or your child or your close friend grasps your hand. Or the sense of sight, the first time that you walk around a corner and behold something that is beautiful that you have never seen before and it just takes your breath away the sense of hearing, the piece of music that brings tears to your eyes and exhilarates your very being in ways that you can't explain. Or the sense of smell, the way that those few molecules get into your nostrils and they are able to bring back vividly those memories from the distant past. Isn't it wonderful to be embodied? 
but it's pro precisely because God has made us as embodied beings with all of the blessings that these senses that we take so much enjoyment from can become ends in themselves. They are so wonderful that these are the things that you live for and you get consumed by having the enjoyment of them. For those of us that were here last week on this Tuesday chapel, remember Lionel's words to us as he was talking to us about food from 1 Timothy chapter 4 there. And we even speak of food in moral categories. That's what happens. We take those wonderful blessings of our embodiment and that becomes what life is all about. But our bodies have a purpose that is beyond our senses. Even though our embodiment carries with it so many blessings, our bodies have purposes that are much greater than that, much more important than our senses, so that we will not live merely for the satisfaction of our senses. So easily, the blessings of our embodiment become all that there is, and human beings live for their sensual pleasures. You can see it in this passage that I just read to us, in what looks like a call and response in the opening verses of the passages. So here it looks like Paul is repeating their words and then he responds to correct them. So the call is, this is what you've said and here is my response. And you can see from it that the Corinthians are only concerned with their sensual pleasures. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything but I will not be mastered by anything. I can do what I like, is what the Corinthians say. And Paul resp responds that it will have an effect on you if you choose to do things, and the effect will not always be beneficial. In fact, the effect could possibly be that it will master you and so take over your life and control you and reduce you. Chasing the pleasure of the senses has a very severe downside. It can take control. And I don't need to give you long examples because we see them every day in other people and we see them sadly every day in ourselves. You give into a pleasure and it takes control of you. Substance abuse, pornography. It's not just that they are not beneficial, they start to control you. And then Paul gives the next call and response. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy them both. Food, they say, food's for the stomach. The stomach was made to enjoy food. The two go hand in hand. So let's just let it roll. Let's just eat and satisfy our stomachs. But there is something bigger than the senses because God will destroy both food and the stomach. You see, the senses are not in an end in themselves. They will come to an end. God will destroy them both. See how easy it is to be seduced by the good things of embodiment. And so don't be. But then Paul seizes on and focuses on one specific sensual experience. That is sex and sexual immorality. Because this embodied blessing, that is the joy of sex, when it is used wrongly, when it is used immorally, is not beneficial and it will destroy and master you. And it has no place in the embodied life of the Christian person. <clears throat> so Paul goes on. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord 
and the Lord for the body. This is the sharp point of Paul's call and response. Sexual immorality. I was uh, reading this morning's newspaper and there's uh, apparently in the New South Wales teaching program now, they've picked up the idea of sexual immorality and they've said, we have got to talk to you about what consent looks like. How do you give consent? That's what we're teaching teenagers now. And so that's the limit of what this world can offer in terms of sexual immorality. But as you read 1 Corinthians, what we, uh, Paul actually gives shape to what sexual immorality is in this letter. It's a man sleeping with his father's wife in chapter 5. That is, there are people who it is inappropriate to have sex with. Or earlier in this chapter, chapter 6, homosexual, homosexual relationships, it's inappropriate to have sex with people of the same sex. Sex outside marriage in the next chapter. The sensual gratification that comes from sexual immorality has no place in the believer's life. Now, I hope in our setting you're thinking, yeah, well, that's not surprising that sexuality uh, should be spoken against, although sadly that is not the case in many churches. I hope that you are labouring deeply in prayer as our own General Synod is meeting this week to discuss these very things and there is disputes over every one of those. It is not far away from us though the scriptures are very clear. I hope you are praying for these things. But what is surprising is not that Paul speaks against sexual immorality. What is surprising to me is why sexual immorality is so sharply picked up by the apostle here and why it gets so much attention. It is not that sexual immorality is of no benefit to you, even though that's true, and it's not that sexual immorality will master you, though that's true as well, but it's because God has created our embodiment so that our bodies might be given to the Lord and the Lord to our bodies. That is, our bodies don't belong to us, they belong to Christ. You see, our bodies are united to Christ, and so how we use our bodies matter very much indeed. Now, somehow, and I'm not sure all of the details, you can talk to David Honey or Andrew Leslie, I'm sure they can spread, spread more light on this than I can, but our, our embodiment shows, both shows that we are united to Christ and it's a means that God uses to unite us to Christ. And so, verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, that is, in an embodied way, and he'll also raise us in an embodied way. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? You see what Paul's saying here? Our embodiment and our union with Christ means that our bodies cannot and must not be shared in sexual immorality. It's just unthinkable that we would engage in sexual immorality because union with Christ is a bodily union with Christ. And so Paul goes on in verse 15. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them to a prostitute? Never. That is absurd. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in, in spirit. And so Paul concludes, flee from sexual immorality, 
all other sins a person commits are outside his body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. As in the rest of these two paragraphs, you can't get much clearer than that. Now, Proverbs 6 warns that adultery is actually worse than going to a prostitute because a prostitute only wants bread, but another man's wife wants your very life. But Paul is saying here, even with a prostitute, you become one flesh with her. Even though it's just a transaction, money for sex, you are still united to her. And I know you know this, but I've been in ministry for long enough now to say that it must be said again and to warn me and you against it. I used to serve in a church where there was a man who was a good friend and one night he went to a prostitute. He had reasons and excuses for doing it and he never did it again. But I see after all of these years his marriage has never recovered from that one event. Do not unite your bodies with a prostitute. And I have seen the master that prostitution becomes where when you continue to use prostitutes, you treat your spouse as just an object of satisfaction and it eats the heart out of the relationship of the one who is united to Christ. And so no wonder Paul says never to the idea of, of seeing prostitutes or a sexual immorality. But I've got to say to you that those who go to prostitutes or those who are sexually immoral almost never plan to do it, to orchestrate such a union. I have a rector friend who had a staff member who would perform brilliantly, but he destroyed his life's ministry he destroyed the trust of a hundred young adults for two minutes of pleasure. They're just three stories. You've got plenty more of them, haven't you? Here, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. But through our embodied sexual immorality, we dishonour Christ, who we are united to. Our bodies were meant for so much more than sexual gratification, so much more than going and using a prostitute. Verse 13, they were meant for the Lord. Verse 14, we are bodily united to Christ in resurrection. Verse 15, our bodies are members of Christ himself. And I want to say, just pause and take that in. So recall that image in the book of Revelation where all creation, both earthly creation and heavenly spiritual creation, will fall down and worship Jesus. Remember that image in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah sees the great glory of God, so glorious that it's just the base of his robe fills the temple. And John says, what Isaiah saw was Jesus. Consider when Jesus will return, when all of creation will stop and be silenced as they behold his glory. And he is the one that we are united to. How could we possibly tarnish that? It's unthinkable to be united to a prostitute when we're united to Christ. But there is more to say. Verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit 
who was in you. Corinth had its temples. The Corinthians knew all about temples and they were so proud of their temples. Being a mariner city, Corinth had the huge temple of Poseidon at its isthmus. And in the city itself, it had the grand temple of Apollo that tourists still visit today. It seems that when Greek people um, visit Corinth, what we do is chip off a little bit of the columns and bring them back home here. Um, but that was the grand temple of Apollo, but the base of that temple was only 10% of the size of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The great temple of Apollo in Corinth, nothing compared to the size of the temple in Jerusalem. And you know about the temple in Jerusalem. You close your eyes and many of you can visualise what it looked like because we've seen drawings of it. That temple, though, David wasn't permitted to build it because he had blood on his hands because although God inhabits the whole universe, the whole world, the temple is the place where he chooses to dwell. And now this God chooses to dwell with his people. You see... As big as the Corinthian temples were, they didn't compare in size with the Jerusalem temple, but it's not about size. It's the presence of God that makes the temple important. And in this chapter, in the confines of this skin of mine and of your skin, God dwells. God chooses to dwell. If the temple of Apollo was a thousand times bigger, it would be nothing as astounding as what happens that God dwells in you and me, does it? With all of our human frailties and weakness. This embodied being is the residence of the internal God. How can we for a moment entertain the idea of sexual immorality? And so finally, glorify God with your body, with your body. If you've studied church history one, you'll recall Bishop Polycarp's words when he was confronted with the opportunity to be slaughtered or to have freedom and, uh, and all he needed to do to, be, to save his life was to renounce Christ and those words that I'm sure you've used in sermons. 86, 86 years have I served him and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So they unleashed the lions on him. That is glorifying God with your body, isn't it? We have witnessed the horrors of the eastern Ukraine led by the Russian general who is called the Butcher of Aleppo, that Butcher of Aleppo who destroyed that Syrian city and its inhabitants. I've got a friend, and some of you know this man, whose uncle was a pastor in Aleppo during the siege. He was offered safe passage out of Aleppo, and he said that he would not leave Aleppo until the last member of his church had gone before him. His care for his brothers meant more to him than his bodily survival. That is glorifying God with your body, isn't it? Glorify God with your body, though, in this passage is actually much more local, much more personal, but no less significant. Glorify God in your body by fleeing sexual immorality. While our embodied senses are a wonderful blessing from God, our union with Christ is so much better 
so much more valuable, so much more important. Honour God with your body. Heavenly Father, we ask you that we might be able to glorify you. Spare us from those little steps that lead us to the folly of sexual immorality, to the folly of gratifying our sensual desires at the cost of glorifying you. And as we have spoken of and think about the Anglican General Synod that is meeting this week, we pray that you will do that great work of enabling people to see the horrible folly of sexual immorality, the incompatibility with the name Christian of sexual immorality, and that people would open your word and see what sexual immorality looks like. Amen.